Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. All right, tonight, if you would, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter number 7. I want to use this as a kind of a springboard into what I want to talk to you about tonight. I think that we're seeing this. In Yeshua's day, religious leaders had a death grip on the people. Religious leaders today have a death grip on people. You really need to understand that. Where I'm going to begin reading here in John chapter 7 would have been at Sukkot. We'll start in verse 37, and they're in the middle of doing this big ceremony. And what they've done is they have sent a man, one of the priests, from the Temple Mount down to the Pool of Shalom. And he has taken this uh, chalice, and he's went down there and dipped up water from at the lowest point in Jerusalem. He's brought it up to the highest point in Jerusalem, up on the Temple Mount, and he's now pouring this water out in a symbolic gesture of saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, there's going to be help when the Holy Spirit comes. And it was such a big ceremony. In those days, it was only the elite religious leaders that would get to witness this. I mean, you know, you would have to have room there. Everybody couldn't get up there. There would have been millions of people in Jerusalem at this time, and only the elite got to see this ceremony. But Yeshua's up there. And in verse 37, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, and if you're reading King James, it says on the eighth day, the the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Verse 40 says, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. If you want to do something interesting, ask a lot of your New Covenant friends, New Covenant preachers, who is this prophet? Who is that prophet? Most of them don't know. They don't have a clue. But but the people here, after hearing this, verse 41 says, others were saying, this is the Messiah. There's two opinions now. One of them saying, this is the prophet. It's that prophet. They know there's a prophet that's to come. And they always call him that prophet. It's the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Hold your place there, and let's go to Deuteronomy and read that. Deuteronomy chapter number 18, and it starts in verse 15. It was a prophecy given by Moses that had come from God because the people didn't want to hear the voice of God. They made a deal. They said, Moses, you go up on the mountain and find out what God has to say, and whatever he says, you come down and tell us, and we'll do it. So this prophecy is concerning that covenant that the people had made with God. In verse 15, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now, that's the that prophet that they're talking about. Now, it's very interesting that, that God said, I, uh, in verse 15, Yahweh, your Elohim, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Was Yeshua like God? He was God. So both these people are right over here. Some says, is this the, some say this is the Messiah. Others say this is that prophet. They're referring back to a prophecy that God had given that has to be fulfilled. And he said that he's going to raise up a prophet like him. Now verse 16, it says, this is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, they've spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. What was the deal? The deal was, Moses, 
come up here. You know, we want a man. We want a man that can hear the words of God, come down and tell it. This is the major teaching of Torah. It's called ascending and descending. You find it all over the scriptures, New Testament and Old Testament both. Who ascended and who descended? He descended, died on a cross, ascended back to heaven. He descended down to us. He is that prophet. What was the deal? Moses. Send a man up here to God. Up there where God is. You go up there for us. Find out what God has to say. Come down here and tell us and we'll do it. God says that's the deal. So when Yeshua over here now in chapter 37, in chapter 7, verse 37, says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said. That is one of the most important things that Yeshua makes a statement about in this whole chapter, as the scripture said. There's a lot of things being said about Yeshua that's not as the scripture says. Verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. When did he get glorified? Feast of first fruits, when he arose from the grave. He come out with a glorified body. He was glorified. All right, verse 40 now. Some of the people were therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Messiah. Still others were saying, Surely the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Do you realize how many different religious thought processes are going on here? It's no different in the world today. Everybody thinks they've got it figured out. Some of these folks say, well, that's the prophet. Others say, no, that's the Messiah. I mean, he's fitting what the prophecies had to say, what the Messiah was going to be like. But they said, surely, you know, some of the rest of them said, surely this, the Messiah's not going to come from Galilee, is he? Did the Messiah supposed to come from Galilee? Don't you hold that thought in mind when we get, to, get just a little bit farther. Verse 42 says, Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Was Yeshua born in Bethlehem? Where did he grow up? In Nazareth. Verse 43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. There was at least four denominations right there. They thought about things different ways. Verse 44 says, Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? See, they had sent the officers of the court, Levites. The priests had sent Levites here. By the way, they're not even priests. They're what's known as bastard priests because they bought the job from the Roman government. They're not even Levites. But they've sent these Levite uh, officers. And in verse 45 again, it says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They could not refute what he was saying. They could not find any legal grounds, any moral grounds, any grounds whatsoever to arrest him like they had been sent to do. He was speaking with brilliance that they could not refute. Did you realize that there is a prophecy on your life in the last day that what you have to say cannot be refuted. Would it not be important for you and I to know what the scriptures say? All right, look at verse 46. The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? 
No one of the rulers or the Pharisees have believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the Torah, is a curse. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. These religious leaders that are blatantly breaking the commandments of God in that that they have bought from the Roman government, them not even Levites, the positions that they have. And here they are saying, well, you bunch of dummies. You're not caught up in this stuff like the rest of these people that don't know the Torah. I mean, you know, we're the smart ones. We're the ones that knows it. We're in control. I'm going to tell you something. You're going to see a lot of this take place, and that's one of the reasons we got this little booklet from this man. It's simply because we've come to a point in the world where religious leaders are getting afraid of losing control. In the next few years, you're going to see that happen. And the more it happens, the more violent they're going to get. They're not going to like it. It's going to be more than just a little booklet trying to straighten you out. Notice again what he says in verse 47. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the Torah, is a curse. Nicodemus. We know Nicodemus, don't we? He's one of the ruling council. He's one of the 70 of the Sanhedrin. Has he believed in Yeshua? Yeah, back in chapter 3. He's trusted in him. He came to him by night. What was it Yeshua told him? He said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 50 says, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our Torah, our law, does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? That's an honest question. The Torah would absolutely deny what they're doing. Under the Torah of God, the most just system in the world. I mean, you know, people talk about the American justice system, how wonderful it is. And that's a joke. God's justice system was perfect if they were following it. You couldn't condemn a man without two or three witnesses. And it was such a serious thing if a man had violated uh, the law of God to receive the death penalty. Those witnesses had to be the first to throw the stones. It was a serious matter. Man wasn't going to get up there and just lie about it for no reason. Nicodemus is trying to make them stop and think. They're breaking the Torah. They're blatantly breaking it. And they're telling these other people, they're, well, you're ignorant. You don't know what the Bible says. And they're blatantly breaking the word of God. So verse 52, it says, they answered him. You're not also from Galilee, are you? See how quickly they turned on one of their own? Nicodemus is one of the most respected men of the Sanhedrin at this time. And they turned on him like a pack of wild dogs. You're not from Galilee too, are you? I mean, they've already convinced these religious leaders have taught these people that the Messiah couldn't come from Galilee, could he? Remember that verse I told you to, to read? What was it that Nathaniel said? Surely no good thing comes out of Nazareth, does it? That was a prevalent teaching of that day. Because the learned scholars of that day, these religious leaders, knew the scriptures and nobody else did. See, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Well, they didn't even believe that prophecy. Now, what you think about this? Why in the world, when three wise men at Yeshua's birth, actually he was probably about two years old when they came, come and ask Herod at Jerusalem where the king of the Jews was to be born. Remember, Herod didn't know, and he had to call the scribes. The learned men. And they said, well, you know, we'll admit the scripture says he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That's what Micah 5.2 says. 
But if they believed that and they wanted the Messiah to come, and they did want the Messiah to come, let, let me just put your, you, put yourself in their shoes. You're one of these scribes, and you'll have to admit, well, you're coming asking where the Messiah is supposed to be born. Well, the prophecies say, Micah 5, 2 says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And the wise men, they get on their camels and they ride to Bethlehem. If you really want the Messiah, why don't you get on your camel and ride seven miles over to Bethlehem? I think that's a fair question. If you really want the Messiah to come, why would you not ride seven miles to see if it was true? The prevalent teaching, if you study Jewish history, the prevalent teaching of that day by these same religious leaders was this. Jerusalem is the city of the king. That's true. But in man's rationalization, they said since Jerusalem the city of the king, the Messiah has to be born in Jerusalem. There is not one prophecy anywhere that said the Messiah would ever be born in Jerusalem. It said he would be born in Bethlehem. Now, what did they do? They chose to believe religious men's teaching over the word of God. That's what they chose. That's what they did. Therefore, they sent the wise men on, and Herod said, well, if you find anything, let me know about it. Of course, we know they went the other way. But here's the interesting thing. They believe that they understand the scripture. They believe that they know how everything's supposed to work. So nothing can come out of Nazareth. No good thing. Why? Because they plainly said there's no prophecy that any good thing would come out of Nazareth. Well, go back with me to Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter number 7, and we'll start in verse 10, God gives a prophecy about the Messiah. You You can't miss this. It says in verse 10, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And we got people running around today saying that Yeshua is not God in the Messianic movement. And they're, they're doing a lot of harm to a lot of people. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that when somebody tells you that Yeshua is not really God, why in the world does Isaiah tell us in chapter 7 that this virgin is going to bear a child a son, and she's going to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What's the name mean? Jump with me to chapter 9. Now, it's just the prophecy that that child is going to be born. In verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Where is Zebulun and Naphtali located? Where Nazareth is in the Galilee. So there is a prophecy. These religious men said, oh, we know the Torah. These other people are ignorant. There's, there's no prophecies about the Messiah in Galilee. You know, it just has to be down here in Bethlehem in Judah where, where we're at. Verse 2 says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They'll be glad in your presence as in the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, 
and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tournament, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire, for the fire, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from them on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's very interesting. You remember back in chapter 7 where I read to you that the prophet Isaiah said that a virgin would conceive a son? The Hebrew word there is Alma for virgin. Now, Alma means a young maiden, that she could be a virgin, but she might not be a virgin. And that's what the rabbis will tell you today. And they'll say, oh, we know, we know the scripture, you you Gentiles, you know, you Ephraimites, you, you don't know the Torah, we know the Torah. And so they'll tell you, say, you're just, you know, that's a, a wrong translation. It didn't say that was a virgin, it was an Alma, a young maiden. But the problem is, and I've not had one rabbi that will talk to me about this to this point. Did you see there in verse 7 where it says there will be no end to the increase of his government? That word increase contains one of the titles that's found in the ancient Masoretic text. It contains a mem sophit. Now, a mem sophit should be at the end of a word, right? That's where sophits go, at the end of a word. This mem sophit is found in the middle of the word. There's a mem. Now, I'll show you what this is. This is a picture of a woman with child. That's the word picture. It's a womb. A mem sophit It's pretty much the same letter. Here's the big difference. A pregnant woman does not have a closed womb. She was a virgin. She was found with child with a virgin. The rabbis don't want to deal with that. They know it's there. They're religious people. But it does not fit their religious teaching. And so when religious leaders come along and find something in Scripture that don't fit their teaching, their already conceived idea, they leave that out. They don't want to talk about it. They skip over it. That's very important. Go back with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Here's the reactions that you get. Verse 52 again. They answered him. They're talking to Nicodemus. You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of the Galilee. And yet that prophet and Messiah himself was the greatest prophet, was prophesied to come out of the land of Naphtali and Zebulun of Galilee. Kind of seems like they didn't know the scriptures well they thought, did it? So look what they do in verse 53. Everyone went to his home. We know. We're right. We don't want to talk to you. See you later. Do you, do you find yourself talking to people and they don't want to talk to you about the truth? Religious people have never changed. And they can't because they don't understand that the devil is trying to prostitute them. I'm not saying these people are not saved. Look, Satan can't do anything about the salvation that you and God have come in covenant with. He can't do anything about it. You've been betrothed to the Son of God. But do you not think that the devil would not want to prostitute you so, so that when the wedding comes, that the Messiah won't accept you as the bride? That's what's going on. Don't you think that Satan is not using religious people in the day and time that we're living in today to still try to get people confused because they don't know the scriptures? They think they do. 
I talk to people all the time, and this is this is so strange to me. I had a fellow just a couple of weeks ago tell me this. Well, I know that you know the scriptures a lot better than I do, but I'm right. That's what he said. You know what he was saying, though? He was saying, I'm right about my religion. He wanted the scriptures he was talking about. He knew his religion. He knew what his religion taught. But he knew that he didn't know the scriptures, and it didn't seem to bother him. He didn't seem to mind. This little booklet I've got, no doubt, was from someone talking to this man, and this evangelist, no doubt from a charismatic-type church, from what I've gathered from reading the book, and he sent me this little book, and I want to share some things with you tonight and just talk to you. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll be able to learn a little bit better how to answer other people. Our core portion this week is what? In his statutes. That's the way we're supposed to live, isn't it? In his statutes, in his commandments. Not in man's teaching, not in 3,000 different denominational teachings in the United States. He starts out in this little book by saying, In the Garden of Eden, Adam, and uh, the federal head of the human race, disobeyed God's commandment. Genesis 3, 6. And incurred the wrath of God upon himself and all of us. God's sentence upon sin was death. And he uses Genesis two sixteen and 17. And, I'm, and that's what God said. He said, the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you'll surely die. In that day, you'll surely die. Well, they didn't die that day, did they? Yeah, they did. One day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. How old was Adam when he died? 930 years old. He died in that day. So he actually died just like the Lord said. But he had died a spiritual death. The Lord redeemed him. Those animals that he clothed them with, the, the hides of those animals, were used as a sacrifice. Blood was shed so that God wouldn't have to destroy them eternally at that moment. He uses the scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, to tell us about spiritual death. Genesis 5, 5, about physical death. The second death in the lake of fire forever, Revelation 21, 8. Luke 16, 23 through 24. Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Now, here's his explanation. Don't you listen very carefully. That sentence upon sin can't be swept aside and ignored. He's absolutely right. I don't care who you are, how big you think you are, how great you think you are. God would cease to be God if he ever overlooked one sin in anybody. Sin is never overlooked. Sin is paid for. It will either be paid for by you or it was paid for through your acceptance of Yeshua's death on the cross. But not one sin has been ever been overlooked. So the man's right. He says it has to be dealt with. Romans 5.12, he says, Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, the death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for, all, uh, for that all have sinned. That's correct. He even quotes the verse correctly. He goes on to say, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. He's quoting the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, he goes on. Let me read this for you before we turn to Scripture. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him who was to come. Now, he's trying to tell us that God came up with a new way to save people. He's quoting the Apostle Paul. Go with me to... First Peter, Second Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read a little bit more tonight just to keep this in context. Now, I want you to start with me in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with the intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, be, will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. This man is quoting from Romans, which was a letter that Paul wrote. Peter here, now think about this. Peter's a lot like I am. Peter is just no working still. And he's talking about the apostle Paul. There's a big difference in Peter and Paul. The biggest difference was that Paul, from the time that he was just a child, was brought up in the teaching of the temple service and the Torah. He sat under the feet of Gamaliel. If he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, do you realize that he, as a young man, when he comes to Gamaliel, when his parents bring him there, has to be able to quote the entire Torah? Not read it, quote it before Gamaliel will even take him as a student. Paul's a pretty sharp boy, isn't he? Peter knows how to fish. He loves the Lord, and he knows a lot of things about the Lord. But he is not as trained, he is not as wise in Torah as Paul is. Now, when Peter writes here in verse 16, or verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul wrote, our brother Paul, according to the great wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. He's not to tell you the truth. He's not my buddy Paul. He's deep. He's, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, he said some of the stuff that Paul teaches is hard to understand because he has a grasp of Torah much, much better than Peter does, much better than the other apostles would have. He's been trained in this stuff all of his life. And so when Paul talks, like in Romans chapter 5, he's, he's speaking in deep Torah understanding. And so Peter's trying to make us understand something. Verse 16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of, of these things in which uh, are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. That word really means to twist which the untaught and unstable twist as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Why I can't stay mad at somebody like this when they do it is because I know that they're twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. But they're taking a whole bunch of other people with them. John chapter 7, there are those religious leaders. It's obvious that the, the normal people had been listening to their teaching because they believed in these things. Some believed one of the teachers who taught was their big emphasis is on that prophet. Some's emphasis was on the Messiah. Others' emphasis was on, you know, well, where does all this supposed to take place at? Let me tell you something, folks. There's never been a time when we need to understand Scripture. The most important thing you've got to do in your life is study the Scriptures. Don't just take religious people. Don't take what I tell you. 
Search it out in the scriptures and see if it's not so. This man's trying to tell us now in this little booklet. He goes on to say, unless there was a way to be cleared, justified of the guilt of sin, we would have to die a living death in a burning lake of fire forever. Now, what he's already overlooked here is the fact that God had redeemed Adam and Eve. They were saved. Blood had been shed. Since without the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, but God had shed blood. Let me ask you this. Adam and Eve was saved, don't you think? Why did God not let them come back in the Garden of Eden? Because they had to learn the Torah. They had to learn God's way. You can't be in fellowship with God, be in the place where God is, and not do it his way. I mean, they've got a record. They break the commandments of God. They didn't have but one to keep, couldn't keep it. But they're not lost because of that, because they're redeemed. I'm going to tell you what this man has to say. God did not want mankind to be lost forever. I'm agreeing with everything he's got to say. He wanted his righteousness restored in his sinning creatures so they could be justified for eternal life instead of eternal damnation. But because of God's holiness and justice, he could not change the horrific sentence. Was there no way mankind could assuage God's wrath whereby we could be cleared of the guilt and sin and be forgiven? He says God started with the nation of Israel. Where did the nation get its name, Israel? From Jacob, wasn't it? Didn't Jacob's name get changed to Israel? I thought he started with Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. This man and most people, because he's the blind leading the blind, they just throw Abraham out. Somehow they don't care to have Abraham in the church, but boy, this Jacob fellow, you know, we don't want nothing to do with him. The greatest type of the Holy Spirit of God is Jacob, and the church holds him in disdain. This is very, very important for you to listen to me tonight. He calls this plan A, a works plan for righteousness or guiltlessness or justification. God's first plan was, was something that failed. Did you know that your God failed? That's not in scripture, is it? That's what this man believes. And that's what 90% of New Covenant believers in this country today believe. I don't have time to go through all the scriptures that he's taken out of context, but we are going to get through some of them. He goes on to say, therefore, the purpose of the works of the laws of Moses was to give to Israel a formula for righteousness or justification through obedience. That's not taught in Scripture. Through obedience to the judgments, laws, and statutes. In other words, complete obedience to the works of the law of Moses was a way for Israel to be justified in God's sight and be saved from the death penalty God pronounced upon mankind in the Garden of Eden. He said that was a way. It's a funny thing to me that there is no law, no sacrifice, nothing in the Torah that you could bring to God to justify yourself. Not one. Now, we've all committed sins of ignorance, haven't we? All of us. And we'd freely admit that. But every one of us has committed sins that we knew what we were doing on purpose in defiance to God. And let me tell you, there was not a sacrifice given. There was not a holy day given whereby atonement could be made for willing sin. And I'll dare anybody in this country to show me where one of God's sacrifices was for willing sin. They were all for unwilling sin. That's why God gave them. Because it was the sins of ignorance, if you will, that broke the fellowship with God, not the relationship. They don't understand this. 
Now, as this man begins to go farther and farther into this, he does something that everybody that I talk to accuses me of. They accuse me of trying to be saved and to try to get you to be saved by keeping the law. Have I ever taught you that? Does anybody believe that? I have talked to men like this and will talk to this man. And I'm going to tell him that before I ever kept one of the laws of God, I was saved by the grace of God through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. I accepted Jesus' death on the cross because I didn't even know his name was Yeshua at the time. I prayed the prayer of repentance, the sinner's prayer, if you will, and God accepted me. I did not know because I was in that system that told me that after I got saved, I could just do whatever I wanted to. That I was saved. It was already said. But this man comes back, and I don't care what I say, he'll come back because I've talked to people just like him and say, you're trying to save yourself. This man talks about in this book, and I don't have time to go through the whole thing. He says these people back in these days, they didn't understand salvation. You know, now in the modern day when we're so much more intelligent, yeah, that we understand God's easy believism. It's always believing in God that got somebody saved. It was Abraham. It was Isaac. It was Jacob. That's the only way that anybody ever come into relationship with God is that they believed the covenant that God was making with them. All right, we've come to a place now that we're going to deal with one of these scriptures. Listen to what he says. These are some of the works of the law of Moses that Israel had to obey in order to be cleared of sin or justified or saved. Circumcision, animal sacrifices, tithes, dietary laws, purifications, carnal ordinances, divers washings, feast days, Daniel, Sabbath, the holy days, judgments, and statutes. I can show you every one of those things was kept by Noah. That's a long time for Moses, wasn't it? Didn't Noah know that there was a difference between clean animals and unclean animals? Well, it must have been kosher laws then, wasn't it? Didn't Noah sacrifice sacrifices to God? 500 years before Abraham. He uses Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and verse 5 to prove this. Now, remember what I said a while ago, when just like those religious leaders that didn't understand those scriptures over back there in Isaiah in chapter 9? You know, because it messed with their belief system. We can't have a prophet coming out of Galilee, so we're just going to throw that out. So this man goes to Acts chapter 15. He uses verse 1. He uses verse 5. Let's turn there. Acts chapter 15. I'm going to show you what he's doing. You know why fellows like this can get away with stuff like this? Because there's not many Bereans around. You remember when Paul went to Berea? The Bible says they were more notable there at Berea. For he said, they, they checked the scriptures daily to see what Paul was saying was so. That's what y'all be doing. A man like this will give you verse 1 and verse 5 of Acts chapter 15 and tell you that the law is a means of salvation. And if you'll look at those two verses, it'll prove it. Well, let's see what verse 1 says. Some of the men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, it sounds like that man's right, doesn't it? Let's look at verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to the observe, to observe the law of Moses. So say, he'll just take, see? Isn't that what I said? He dodged the important part. He threw that out. We're not like Zedekiah. We don't get to take a pen knife and, and cut out what of God's word we don't like and throw it in the fire. It didn't work for him either, by the way, because the next day, Jeremiah had Baruch write that scripture again. It was right back the next day. It always will be. Let's start in verse 1 and read this. 
Some of the men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Paul and Barnabas were in complete disagreement about these Jews saying it was necessary not only to believe in Jesus or Yeshua, but also to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Paul said, no, no, no. Why didn't he quote that? Why didn't he quote verse 2 in this book? See, 99% of the people that listen to this man will never go check out what he's saying, whether it's the truth or not. And all they have to do is read verse 2. He's using that as a as a verifying scripture that God saved people by the law because these Jews that were mistaken, they're believers, by the way. They're Christians. They've been saved. But they've got this wrong idea. They believe you have to add works to it. Now, I'll tell you why this fellow keeps coming back and telling me and everybody else, if you keep the law, you're trying to earn your salvation. He said, you're, that's a work salvation. If this man keeps saying, oh, you have to just believe, 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 that's the works of belief salvation. It'll work. Honey, when I believe God, that thing was settled. I ain't worried about it since then. I know a lot of people does. When I settled that thing, it was settled. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for me to go back to God, oh, God, I'm not sure you saved me or not. And God said, well, which one of us is lying? You or me? It wasn't him. And I know when I come to him, I was serious. And he said to him that cometh to me in no wise will I cast out. And I believe my salvation was fixed at that point. Now, the saving of my life, my mind, the things that I do, that's a, the lifelong process. The saving me from the presence of sin will be done at the end of the age. But I was saved as far as my spirit goes as soon as I came to him. As soon as I believed that God promised in the Garden of Eden that he would send his son in type and shadow, he would send his son to die on the cross and defeat Satan so that I could be saved, I believed that. All right, let's go back to verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. By the way, this is the first church council. Isn't it, wouldn't it be always smart to go back to the first time that something said, if you're going to get it right? So this is the first church council. There's an argument here. Some are saying, oh yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you're not totally saved and you keep the law of Moses and get circumcised. And Paul said, no, that's not the way it works. Verse 3 says, therefore, being sent on their way to the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received with the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, you remember Nicodemus? He wasn't in this bunch, but there was a lot of Pharisees saved. Some of the uh, sect of the Pharisees who had believed, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. You do realize that Satan was busy at that time trying to prostitute God's people, trying to mess them up. Verse 6 says, the apostles and the elders came together and looked into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And Peter said, you know that's a fact. It was me on the day of Pentecost that God used to speak to the Gentiles. Then he sent him to Cornelius, remember? Verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them uh, the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. What's Peter saying here? Peter said, now, I know there's a difference of opinion here. Some of you think, you know, you've got to add to believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You've got to add your work somehow. But he said, the truth is, I saw God save Gentiles. They received the Holy Spirit just like we did, and there was no getting circumcised, no keeping the law of Moses. They had never heard of it, but they were just as saved. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke, now listen, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The religious people had put a yoke of bondage upon them, trying to get them saved by the works of the law. We don't do that. We don't teach that. But we're not out of balance like this man. It's very, very important for you to understand this. Because this is where you're going to be attacked when you try to talk to people. Nobody ever got saved by the law. He said, none of us, our fathers, nobody was ever able to bear this yoke. Now look at verse 11. But we believe uh, that we are saved through the grace of Adonai Yeshua in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon, he's talking about Peter here. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles, a people for his name. With this, the prophets agree. James, let me tell you something. What we've been talking about here, and what Peter's been telling us about, is a fulfillment of Amos chapter 9, verse 11. That's what, that's what he's saying, because he's going to quote Amos nine eleven, Verse 15 again says, With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment, and this is James talking, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning or returning. The word there should actually have been translated returning. To God from among the Gentiles. Who was among the Gentiles? The ten lost tribes. They're now, by the death of Yeshua, able to return. Hold your place. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We'll come right back to Acts 15 because there's a lot more that's very important here. Romans chapter 7. Many times in my ministry I've heard other preachers try to use this passage of Scripture to counsel people that are having marital problems. Talk to them about divorce. They ain't got a clue what they're talking about. Look what it says in verse 1. Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. How many preachers do you know can tell you one of the 613 commandments? So if they're using this passage of Scripture to try to counsel marriage, they've taken it completely out of context, right? Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is releasing the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, 
though she is joined to another man. Now, if you know the law, that law goes a little bit deeper. The Torah says if a woman, if a man puts a woman aside, gives her rid of divorcement, and she goes and marries another man, she commits adultery. If he marries another woman, she commits adultery. That's what scriptures teach. But that man that she went and married, if she divorces him, she can never go back to her first husband. Never, ever. That's what the Torah says, unless there's a death. You ever wonder why that when God divorced the ten northern tribes, our forefathers, and we were called not his people, you ever wonder why Jesus had to die to fulfill the law so that we could be married to him again? That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. When you understand that, you'll begin to understand what Acts chapter 15 is all about. God made it so that the Gentile, the lost tribes of Israel, if you will, could return. That's why in verse 19, James says, Therefore it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled from blood. Now they're going to write a letter. How many of you in your New Covenant churches and all the time you were going there ever knew, you know, there's an epistle to the Romans, there's an epistle to the Philippians, there's a, there's a, all kinds of epistles there. But did you ever hear that there was an epistle to the Gentiles? And it's found right here in Acts chapter 15. A letter to the Gentiles. James says, what we need to do is write a letter. Now, we don't try to burden them with everything he said. We write to them and tell them. They're to abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and what is strangled from blood. If I take the five books of Moses, the Torah, and I put them under the headings that they're broken down in, which is three, there's things about idols, idol worship, the law deals with. Remember the second commandment, what the second commandment was? Thou shalt not make any graven image. That's what he's talking about. So the Gentiles are supposed to do that after they're saved. Not in order to be saved, but after they're saved. Then they're also to stay away from fornication, and they're also to stay away from things that were strangled from blood. Do you realize those are the three main points of the Torah? That's what they are. Don't throw all 613 commandments on them all at once, James says. That's why we're getting everything so messed up. You know, folks, that there's 613 commandments, and there's some of them that I don't have to worry about keeping whatsoever. You're, you're starting to think about that. See, there's some laws for women, Nida, that has to do with a woman's cycle that I don't ever have to worry about. Why should I concern? I mean, I need to know these things, but why should I worry myself to death on whether or not I'm keeping that law or not when it's impossible? Why should I worry myself as a grown man, almost 59 years old, with laws that has to do with children? I'm past that point. How do I keep the law of God? One at a time. That's the only way anybody can keep it to the best of your ability. But the Gentiles, now, verse 20 says, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, from blood. The three basic points of Torah. Why? James, why should we do that? Look at verse 21. For Moses, that's the Torah, from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. James said, look, let's start these Gentiles out that don't know anything about the Torah, don't have any understanding because it's so deep that they can't get it. Let's start them out with the main points and let them learn because they're going to be going to synagogue every Sabbath. See, they didn't have churches with steeples and King James Bibles under their arm to go to. They didn't exist. How did people for the first 325 years 
learn to walk with Jesus, with the Torah. They go to synagogue every Sabbath. They go to the temple too. Up to 78 AD, it was destroyed. They offer sacrifices. They do all these things according to their understanding. Gentile people were going to the synagogues to learn how to walk with Yeshua. They studied the Torah. It wasn't until Constantine, the Roman emperor, that that was changed. So people that do the things of the new covenant teaching today is not keeping the commandments of God. They're keeping the commandments of Constantine. They don't realize that. And they think what they're doing is the commandments of God. But they're not. He says in verse 21, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he has read the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders of the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called uh, uh, Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the, uh, the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. What letter? That letter says, Gentiles, you got saved by grace through faith. Now you're to start learning the Torah. You're to start out with the three basic points. You go to the synagogue every Sabbath, hear the Torah taught just like you hear it taught here, and you learn week by week on how to apply these things to your life and what they really mean. So in verse 23 it says, And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren, who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, who are from the Gentile greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number who have gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send uh, to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Adonai Yeshua Hamashiach. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. That was the letter. That's the letter to the Gentiles that was sent. Did you notice back there in verse 24? Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. Do you know that these men, back in verse 1, they said, oh no, now we know that you have to not only believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Even though they went to the church council and heard from the apostles, heard from Yeshua's half-brother James, even though they knew what the prophecies said, their religious ideas made them get angry and not agree with that, and they went on ahead of Barnabas and Paul and have disturbed these people, tell them, oh, yes, you do have to be circumcised and have to keep the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, they went into an area called Galatia, not to one church, but to many churches. The letter that Paul writes that we call the book of Galatians, it wasn't to one church. It was the churches in the whole region there called Galatia. Because these very men who didn't like, they got disagreed with, these are the ones that was the real Judaizers. Now, we get accused of that all the time. And yet, we have never told anybody that you got saved by keeping the law. We've always said that you got saved by grace through faith, 
That not yourself, it's a gift of God, not a work, lest any man should boast. But I'm telling you that the letter of the, to the Gentiles tells you that when you get saved, Gentiles, that you're to go to synagogue and listen to the Torah portions be taught every week so that you keep them. I know some people right now say, well, I'm having trouble with the kosher laws, you know. I, I just don't want to give up the pork. I have New Covenant believers tell me from time to time that, you know, as long, the Bible says as long as I pray over it's clean. And they believe that. They believe as long as they pray that prayer over it, that that somehow turns pork that's unclean into an unclean meat, or to a clean meat. That's always my response. That same passage tells me not to have fornication. If I tell my wife I'm going to go out and get me another woman and pray over her before we commit fornication, then it's okay. Is that not the same logic? It's not okay. It's not okay to break God's commandments. Because when he saved me, I made a covenant with him that I would do what he says. He says not to eat pork. I'm not going to eat pork. Hey, I grew up on that stuff. I liked it. But when I seen that God said, no, you're not to eat that, I stopped. And you talk about that in Acts chapter 10. You know, you talk about that all day long about, well, God let those animals down and said they're all clean. No, if you go on. Peter said, you know that vision I had? He, he was very perplexed about that. And then when we got Cornelius' house, he said, he said, now I know what it means. It means that I'm not to call any man unclean. Didn't have anything to do with the food. Peter said he was very perplexed about it. And I listen to religious leaders today. They ain't perplexed about it a bit. They're smarter than Peter was. They think they know what it means. Never even read the scriptures. You see the danger of not knowing what the scriptures actually say? This man is saying the works of the law was God's plan A so a man could be saved. And he actually quotes Acts 15, but verse 1 and verse 5. He wants, to leave, he wants you to leave the rest of that out. Acts 15 is very powerful if you don't leave the rest of it out, don't it? As a matter of fact, it disproves everything that that man's trying to prove in this booklet. We're running late. i got to give you just one more. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Now I'm still in here, and he's telling us how how failed, how flawed God's plan A was. And then he's going to tell us in plan B how God's easy believism, you know, that's all you got to do. You don't have to, well, nobody's saying you have to keep the law to be saved. But after you get saved. So he quotes Romans three nineteen. Let's start there. Now we know that whatever the law says is speak to those who are under the law. You see the way I said that's the way most people feel about it. I can talk to a person five minutes about the scriptures, and I can tell you if they're anti-Semitic and hate the law of Moses. It's, it's real easy. Just the inflection in her voice to give them away every time. I didn't ever forget several years ago, a Methodist church invited me to come down and speak one Sunday morning to their Sunday school class. And they just, you know, they thought we were Jewish, so they wanted to see all the Jewish regalia. They were, they were really in for a surprise, and they didn't know it. I did wear my kalich, you know, and my kippa. I don't normally do that, but, you know, I knew what they were expecting, but I was wanting to try to get a foot in, you know. And it really shocked these people, you know, that we believed in Yeshua. I mean, they just they wanted to hear about other religions, but, you know, Yeshua just couldn't be for the Jews. Now, we'll forget, the Methodist Church, and I, I think they call them doorkeepers, they greet people when they come in. They've always got some people there in Methodist churches to greet people and make sure, you know, for service that they everybody's greeted. And this older fellow, he's up in his seventies, and 
he was one of the greeters. He had to leave the class early and get there before worship time started so that he could greet everybody. And so he come to me and he was apologizing for having to leave. And he said, now, he said, I'm one of the doorkeepers. And he said, I've got to go. And I just wanted to make sure that you understand that, that I don't have anything against you. He said, when I was in the army, some of my best friends were Jews. And I said, I've got some black friends that you say the same thing about, and I know exactly how you feel about them. He didn't know what to say. You can't fool somebody when you know it'll come out in them. The mouth speaketh the abundance of the heart. If you read this little book, I can show you place after place. When someone's reading it this scene, he said, man, this man's anti-Semitic. You can tell it. I don't have to tell nobody. You can just see it. Let's start here in verse 19. Now, we that know whatever the law says is speak to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, I'm not disagreeing with that. This guy says I am, but I'm not disagreeing with that. But I'm not agreeing to the fact that I'm not supposed to keep the law after I'm saved. He will always bring us up about saved or lost. I'm talking about the part of the Great Commission. You know, Yeshua told his disciples to go into all the world and baptize men in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? But he also said, and teach them whatsoever I have taught you. What did Yeshua teach his disciples for three years? The Torah. So the Great Commission is two parts. It's not just one. Now, I'm all for evangelism. I'm all for an evangelist going out and getting people saved. But he needs to mind his place. Don't try to tell people how to live if you're an evangelist. You know, I know that a pastor, just like Paul told young Timothy, he said, do the work of an evangelist. We're all to do that. But we're also to teach people the truth and edify the saints. I mean, I get caught up in this. Verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For though, uh, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Was that a, a bad thing? Paul said, without the law, I want to know what sin was. Well, you don't need the law today because you've got the Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, somebody else to tell you what the law is. Of course, it's not what's in the Bible. Why don't we need God's laws to find out what sin really is? You know, sin, is, as Paul said in Romans chapter 7, Paul said, I wouldn't have had no idea that coveting was a sin unless that's what the law said. You ever thought about that? Now, I know murder is a sin. That common sense tell you that. Adultery is a sin. But for me, just to desire something that somebody else has, that, I thought that was the American dream. We're supposed to do that, aren't we? Covetousness. Paul said, I wouldn't even know that was sin without the law. Do we need the law? Do we need God's law to live by today? Do we need man's law? I mean, you can go up here this evening and run that stop sign as you go out in the road and let the patrolman be right down there. And he's going to stop you. Why? For your own good to keep you from running out in front of somebody getting killed or running out and hurting somebody else. Well, why is God's law not for the same thing? God's teaching and instruction is to keep you from getting killed and to keep others from getting hurt. i got to hurry. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Yeshua HaMashiach for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in uh, Messiah Yeshua, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed 
for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be ju- uh, so he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Yeshua. Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Anybody in disagreement with this? I don't believe you can be saved by the law. I don't care how well you keep it, you can't be saved by the law. Verse 29 says, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. I think one thing that Gentiles need to learn, these people in the New Covenant churches, the Bible says there that God would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So if you run out and you tell the Jews that they can't be saved unless they come into your church where there's a steeple and start doing Christmas and Easter and give up the law of Moses, you're on dangerous ground. God can save the uncircumcised and the circumcised in whatever way he chooses, and he said that's exactly what he's going to do. Verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Did you know that this whole book, and in the back of this book, he says, therefore the law was nullified. Paul addresses this right here. He said, do we then nullify the law through faith? King James says, God forbid. New American Standard here says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What was Paul talking about? After you get saved, you establish the law in your life to change your life so that you can walk with him by his statutes. What's the Torah portion? In his statutes. Turn with me right quickly to Isaiah chapter number 42. I've got to close. Okay. I've done done two takes. And it happens. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 14. I still even, when I, when I talk about this, it may sound like that I'm angry at a man that does this. I'm aggravated. I feel sorry for him. But I'm aggravated because he's leading so many people astray. See, you can, you can get a lot of people to believe junk like that. Trouble is, it's a lie. It's easy to get people to believe stuff like that. Well, all I have to do is just believe. James said, if you believe in one God, you do well. The devil does too, and he trembles. There's more to it than just believing. I believe if you believe him, he'll save you, but that belief better be real. But after you get saved, you need to be different. Now, Isaiah in chapter 42 is prophesying of the end days here. He said, I've kept silent for a long time. He's put up with this silence for a long time. Isn't that a gracious God? He put up with me for 20 years of teaching that craziness. He's a gracious God. But he said, I've kept silent for a long time. I've kept uh, still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pan. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastland and dry up the ponds. Does this kind of sound like a tribulation to you? It's exactly what he's talking about. Verse 16, he says, I will lead the blind by a way they do not know and paths they do not know. I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do and I will not leave them undone. So those that are saved, even though they're blind to the truth of God, they're still saved, right? God said when this tribulation stuff starts, in verse 16, it's, I'll, I'll lead the blind by way they do not know and paths they do not know. I'll guide them. I'll make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I'll do, and I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame. Who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. Hear you, deaf. And look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind 
but my servant. Or so deaf is my messenger whom I send. I don't doubt that this man was called in sin of God as an evangelist. But I'm telling you, Isaiah says, who is as blind and deaf is my servants and my messengers that I've sent. Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind as the servant of the Lord? You've seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great. Not something that you write mean, nasty books about. God said his law was holy. How could it be bad? How could it be a fail plan A? The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with no one to deliver them and a spoil with none to say. That Hebrew word there is to shew, to return. In English it says give them back. It says nobody's telling them to return. Nobody's telling them to return to the Torah. You know what they're telling them? Silly stuff like this. That's what they're telling them. Verse 23 says, Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? That's a good question. How many of us will give, give heed to the word of God and know it that these people might be helped during the tribulation? God said, look, I'm going to bring them out. What's going to keep them alive? Because God's got some people that love him enough and love his word enough to know his word to teach these people the truth in the time when they're going to need it. They're blind. Look one other place, Matthew 13. You also find this parable in Luke chapter 4. But in Matthew 13, Yeshua gives the parable of the sower. Comes out of the house, gets in a little boat, goes out in the sea and sits and talks to about 2,000 people. Is what they've estimated was listening this day. And in verse 10 it says, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? They're wondering about this. Verse 11, Yeshua answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been granted. Not that I've made a difference in you. I've explained these things to you, but I'm just giving it to them in parables. And I'm telling you, the whole Bible is a parable according to Psalm 78, verse 2. Yeshua said to them, It has been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. I asked a preacher this past week, I said, Do you know what the mysteries are in the Bible? I didn't know there's any mysteries in the Bible. Young preacher. You see, today, if you go through their little Bible colleges or you just say you're called, you don't need to know nothing. You can pastor your church. And I'm living proof of that. I surrendered to preach. I preached about 10 times. I started pastoring the church. Did you know that when I rededicated my life that I thought the book of Malachi was Malachi? I was that ignorant in Scripture. Honest, I, well, I'm telling you the truth. I didn't know what the Scripture said, and I've been studying for a long time now. And I know that evangelists and people like this are not studying the Scripture. Look what he goes to say in verse 12. For whoever has to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. You remember that fellow that went to the pool after Yeshua had made the mud and put on his eyes, and he come back, and they asked him if he seen. He said, I see men walking his trees. He had to wash his eyes again, remember? I'm not saying that that's a second work of grace or anything like that. I'm saying that's a sign and a picture, a type and a shadow of God opening the eyes of his people in the last days. Was Paul saved on the road to Damascus? I believe he was, don't you? At least the Lord said he was. I think we can take his word for it. But the scales didn't fall off of his eyes for three days later. So verse 13 of this chapter says, Therefore I speak to them in parable, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, 
you don't believe this, read Isaiah chapter 67. That's where Yeshua was quoting from. He said, you'll keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but you'll not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. What their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This is the most blessed generation that God has ever allowed on planet Earth. I'm convinced of that. God's revealing things today that even great prophets of God never understood. But he's revealing them to us today. But there's some people who don't see it. You know why? Because their heart's hard. You know why they don't, want, they don't want to obey God? They don't care about him. Do you realize that's why they talk about heaven? That's why they talk about a mansion to live in and streets of gold. They don't talk about him. I don't care what he provides for us as long as I'm with him. That's where heaven's at. Everything will be okay where he's at. See, if you don't have a heart for him, you don't see this stuff. And I've said this time and time again. How many of you get frustrated because you can't get people to see the simple truth of Scripture? I guess aggravated sometimes because I'm... <laughs> like the young fellow told me, I know you know the Scriptures better than I do, but I'm right. The Scriptures are what's right. Why can't they just believe it? Because their heart's not right. You ever run into somebody that loves the Lord? They'll listen to every word you got to say. But the ones that are not listening don't love the Lord. They love religion. If you love religion, you think you already know everything. You even think that there's no prophecies concerning Yeshua coming out of Galilee. It's what religious people think, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this time that you've given us to be together and to study your word. We pray, Lord, tonight that the Holy Spirit has touched somebody's heart and maybe enabled them just a little bit better to go out into this world and, and to talk to those you saved, those you love, those you gave your life for those that you want to see receive a great reward. But as it stands, Lord, that there's many people in this world are losing all the rewards that they could have. I ask you, Heavenly Father, to use us for your honor and glory that people might see before it's too late. We know, Lord, that it's only by your Spirit that you can open their eyes. But what you do for us, we'll thank you and praise you in Yeshua's name. Amen. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now, back to our program. No matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio.